Father in heaven, thank you for these gracious words to us this morning. Uh, Thank you for loving us in this way by warning us, telling us about these false teachers. We ask, Father, that by your spirit you would work in our hearts, help us to hear you correctly, uh, to believe and to respond rightly. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to just jump straight in this morning. If you are joining us uh, for this series, uh, if it's your first time here or visiting, firstly, hello, welcome. Uh, It's great to have you. Uh, I'll say it again, though nobody has yet come to speak to me after the service. Do come and say hello. I really would like that. Uh, My name's David and I'm the assistant pastor here. We're in the middle of a four-week series in the book of 2 Peter, and this is week three. And Peter's big aims in this letter can be seen really quickly just by uh, looking at chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 in your Bibles. I don't know which page it's on, you might have to turn the page. There, Peter says, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless, And fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So Peter is writing to believers who are in a secure position and he doesn't want them to lose that stability. So he says on the one hand, be on your guard against the various dangers that could pull you away from devotion to Jesus. And we'll think more about one of those dangers today. And on the other hand, positively, as it were, he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And this is what we've been doing in the last two weeks and what Peter did in the first chapter, encouraging us to avail ourselves to God's promises in the Scriptures, uh, because in them and through them, we grow in our knowledge of Jesus and we grow in godliness and we find a light for our feet on this waiting journey toward heaven. The big idea is Peter wants them to stay safe. And he does this because he knows that Christians are on this waiting journey as we wait for Jesus' return and for God's kingdom to come finally and fully. That's what Peter is doing in this letter. And for this week, it's quite clear that Peter is focusing our attention on false teachers as one of these dangers. And in particular, he wants these believers to stay safe from a type of theology that says how we live doesn't really have any significant eternal consequences. And stay away and be warned about the teachers who promote it. That's his big point this morning. And to get his point across, Peter aims to show us two things. And that's where we'll go this morning. On the one, uh, first thing he wants is to describe these false teachers who bring this theology and live these lives to us. He wants to show us their traits, as it were. And the second thing he wants to do is he wants us to know their end. He wants us to know what, what that theology leads to. And so the idea is that we can spot them and avoid them. And so that's where we'll go. We'll look firstly at their traits, 
Then at their end, and finally, we'll pull together some observations. Uh, but before we get into the text, uh, there's just uh, one more thing I briefly want to mention, and that's two ways that I think we can go wrong when it comes to a text like this on false teachers. Two wrong ways uh, that we could go wrong. Two ways we go wrong. On the one hand, uh, it is possible, I think, to make too much of what Peter says in this passage. I can see how it happens through a love for the truth and a desire to take the apostles' words seriously. But it can happen that we, that we major so much on passages like these that we can end up becoming a bit consumed by them. Uh, it's as though we can end up finding a heresy around every corner and become overly consumed with everyone else's theological missteps. We can subtly find ourselves more often on the back foot, spending more time clarifying what Jesus and the apostles didn't say than on the good news that he did say. And it's almost as though we can forget that Peter has just spent the two, uh, last chapter and the last two weeks exhorting us to make every effort to grow in our own godliness and knowledge of the truth. That's an important thing to keep in mind. On the other hand, we can downplay the seriousness and urgency of what Peter is saying. We can take the warning too lightly, I think, perhaps from fear of appearing overly dogmatic or judgmental or divisive, perhaps. But we must remember that it's not strange to be serious about truth and behaviour when we think it's important enough. We all do it. For example, it really matters whether or not your surgeon knows what he's talking about or whether he's being truthful about it, right? Or think of financial investments. If you had a large sum of money, you'd do your best to make sure that the person who was directing you knew what they were talking about, was on the right side of the law, and was going to deliver on your money. Or our children. We labour to educate our children about life in the real world because we love them and want things to go well for them. We all do it, and the point here is that we are concerned about truth when we think the stakes are important enough. And Peter is drawing our attention to the most important truth this morning. And so I simply say these two things so that, what, uh, so that we take what Peter has to say here about false teachers and in turn the truth as seriously as he takes it, but that we don't become so consumed by such matters as to lose the primary focus on the good news itself. And then one mini point here is just to say, um, uh, as well, that there will be a number of details in this passage that I won't discuss. Uh, I just say this in case you're thinking, oh, I wonder what he's going to say about, uh, for example, uh, the angels sinning. And you've probably got your own little one, right? Because uh, there's a bunch of them in here. Uh, I'm not going to address them, probably. So that's just to say, focus on what I do say, and then at the end... I really would like to chat about it. That'd be great. Come and grab me. Let's chat more. I think it's really important, and the details are important. But I think despite those details, Peter's main point does come uh, through quite clear, and we'll focus our energy there. Okay, with that out of the way, long introduction, uh, let's get into the text. Our first point is Peter wants us to focus on uh, the traits 
uh, of these false teachers. So point one, know their traits. And there are five traits in particular. Firstly, is that they are false teachers. Is it going to work? There we go. They're false teachers. We can see this in verse 1, and it seems like an obvious point. Just as there were false prophets among you, there will be false teachers. Among the people, there will be false teachers among you. It does seem like an obvious point, but it reminds us of the significance of words, doesn't it? Ideas spread through words. They don't just come from nowhere. It really matters what we say. Uh, I say this because there can be a tendency to downplay the importance of confessional statements like we have at MRC, Uh, but the Bible is clear that words matter because words and lifestyle usually go together and wrong ideas are fuel for wrong living. Over time, the words will shape the person or the church. Words matter. Uh, This distinction of teacher also helps us from thinking everybody who doesn't quite hold all the true teaching yet um, uh, yet is someone to be on guard against. Some people might just need more teaching. So we need this distinction. Being a teacher puts someone in a different category because by this stage, we ought to know better or not teach. The point is that someone in the pulpit is different from someone in the pew. And this distinction is helpful. Secondly, they are Christian false teachers. Uh, notice in 2.1 it says, there will be false teachers among you and they will introduce destructive heresies. Or verse 13, it is while they feast with you. Now this is not necessarily among every congregation, but certainly in the church more broadly. Uh, Because they are able to be among the church in some way, it is because they still have Christian-type traits as well. It seems highly probable to me that they still confess to be Christians. Now, I know it says in verse 1 that um, they are even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, but this is an ambiguous statement. Denying what exactly? His existence? His authority? Or does the fact that Peter's use of the phrase, and I refer to the ESV at this point, how they've translated it, uh, master who bought them, denying the master who bought them, does, that use, does the use of that phrase refer to their functional denial of Jesus, like a servant who doesn't obey his master? I think that could be quite likely. The fact that they are among you suggests that there is enough Christianness about them for many people to think they really are Christians. And this is an important thing to note because just because something is presenting as Christian teaching does not necessarily mean that it is. Third, they are confident. Look how Peter describes them in the second half of verse 10. He says they are bold and arrogant. They are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Or again in verses 18 to 19, he says they mouth empty boastful words or in verse 19 they're so confident as they promise them freedom they are confident and sound like they know what they're talking about and that adds to their allure fourth thing is that they are fleshly 
Look what verse 10 says. He says, this is especially true, he's talking about how the Lord knows how to judge, and it's especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the flesh. Now, I think Peter has more than the false teachers in mind in this verse, but not less than. And we can see that because uh, aiming at the desires of the flesh is one of their methods in gaining a following. And we see that, it's in verse 18, by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh. This is one of their modes. This is one of their approaches. Uh, The desires of the flesh are all the natural human desires. This is perhaps a way to think of it. Uh, All the natural human desires operating in sin mode. It's like this. Taste buds. Eat what you want, when you want, how you want, as much as you want. Eyes. Watch what you want, when you want, how you want, for as long as you want. Comfort, live how you want, whenever you want, with whatever you want, as much as you want. Do what you love, do what you want. Follow your flesh. But this plays out for them mainly in sex and greed. Sexual immorality is what Peter is getting at when he described their depraved conduct in verse 2. And we see this key characteristic again in verse 14 when he says that they have eyes full of adultery. Greed gets mentioned three times. First in verse 3 when Peter says, in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Then in verse 14 he says they have hearts trained in greed. And by comparing them to Balaam, he brings up this characteristic of greed again because Balaam loved the wages of wickedness. How surprising, eh? Is anyone else surprised? Sex and money. That that being people who go after the desires of the flesh would mean being interested in sex and money. I feel like the Bible has totally missed it. (laughs) What, What a pathetic effort at trying to describe humanity. Now, it's not that sex or money or food or comfort are intrinsically wrong, are they? They're good. God made these things, and in and of themselves, they're not wrong. But fleshliness is about who's in control and what position these created things hold in a person's life. It's about unrestrained desire. It's about desire satisfied out of its God-ordained place. It's about desires expressed in your ways, not God's ways. And this is the reason why these false teachers have their fifth trait. They are alluring. I hope it's not too hard to see why they are are so alluring now. And why Peter can say in verse 2 that many will follow them. Because they are confident Christian teachers who tell you that you can be a Christian and follow the passions of your flesh. They are playing right to your weakness and say that you can hold on to your theology, but at the same time, have what your corrupt heart wants. All your Christmases have come at once. Your flesh wants to hear that God won't judge. That was a consistent pattern in the Old Testament prophets. Peace, peace, they would say. 
Don't get swept away by Jeremiah when he says, Babylon is coming to destroy us because of our immorality. No, you're God's people. You'll be fine. How you live is of no consequence. Note what Christine brought up about Isaiah 58. Or that you can indulge your sexual desires in ways you see fit. Or that your pursuit of comfort in this present life isn't really greed. Is it? It's blessing. You can hold on to your theology and seek after what your old nature really wants. That's a powerful and alluring message, isn't it? And I think here is where we really get to see what is at the heart of this false theology. You see, the emphasis in this chapter is primarily on behavior, not belief, if you notice that. And the dominant note, when we gather it all together, is license with respect to our fleshly desires. And this is the false teacher that Peter wants us to be on guard against. The one who says that God is not interested in our behavior. Just to be clear, Peter is not saying that belief plus good behavior gets you heaven. He's not saying that. He's saying true belief always leads to changed behavior. So don't buy into theology that says that how you live is of no consequence. Now, you might be thinking, I'm not sure that this happens. But this happens. I know someone, dear, who told me something to this effect. God loves me unconditionally. And he's not about rules. And they told me this as a justification for sleeping with their boyfriend. How it had come in, I don't know. They weren't a young Christian. But this person had bought into this theology. Now, this is a wrong understanding of God's purposes in Jesus' death and resurrection. It was never the goal for Christ to die for sin simply so that they could be forgiven and we carry on in them. Titus 2.14 tells us that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jesus saves us so that we can glorify God with our bodies from a life led by our will and according to our ways so that we can lead by God's will and according to his ways. That's part of the good news. This is what it means to be truly human. They've missed, that theology has missed the purpose, or at least one of the purposes, of Jesus redeeming us. And also, notice how the false teachers promise freedom. This theology has a misunderstanding of true freedom. Peter says, actually, they themselves are slaves of corruption. Why? Because everyone has a master and everyone is a slave to something, even if you yourself are the master. Now, this may be hard to believe, but the problem with us, however, is that we are terrible masters. Why? Because as sinful humans, we are finite and fallen. That means we don't know everything and we corrupt the things we do know. 
Left alone, we don't really know what's best for our lives. Freedom which says we can be the boss is just what Peter says. Slavery to corruption. That's awful freedom. True freedom is found in making God our master through Jesus. God has no knowledge limits. He's the designer and he knows what's best for us. And God doesn't twist his knowledge. He always tells us the truth. And we can trust his character because he's proved it over and over again through history and especially at the cross. God showed that he is so intensely bent on your good that he sent his son Jesus to die to save you from your sins. Jesus is so interested in your good that he carried that cross up the hill for your joy. This is the one to entrust your life to. Submitting to his will is true freedom. These are the traits Peter wants us to be aware of so that we can spot this theology when it comes along. The second thing, know their end. And this may even be with greater urgency that Peter says this. He absolutely labours this point when he says they are 100% doomed. Let's walk our way through the chapter and notice how often Peter brings up the final end of these false teachers. The pattern is that he tells us something about them and then he reminds us of their end. The first time he brings it up is in verse 3. You'll see there, and in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. That's something about them. And then their end. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. I don't mean this in a joking way. But it's like Liam Neeson is not sleeping. Then Peter recounts God's past great actions to demonstrate the pattern in verse 4 and following. And the point there is to show the certainty of their destruction. And look how Peter highlights the theme of judgment a number of times. Let's read it together from verse 4 onwards. He says, for if God, he's told them just about how they're their, their condemnation is, is not idle, it's coming. He says, for if God did not spare angels, even angels, when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is certain doom. Peter goes on to tell us a third time at the end of verse 12 and into verse 13. After telling us about their arrogance, look what he says. Like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. That's his third mention. But Peter is still not done. He picks it up again a fourth time in verse 17 after speaking about their eyes of adultery and their greed. He says that for these false teachers, blackest darkness 
is reserved for them. He's still not done. Finally, in verses 20 and 21, he states it in a very strong way by saying they're actually worse off now than before they knew Jesus. He says, as he comes to an end of this little section, he says, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, and as I pointed out in the first week, remember that's how, how the Christians were described, They are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Before they knew Jesus, there was always the hope that they could come to know Jesus and be saved. But now that they have turned their backs on the only hope of rescue, there is no other rescue when you reject the only way. Perhaps you are just here Uh, This morning, and you yourself are not a believer, rejoice that there is a way and take that way. Turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and trust in him. Now, what is Peter doing? Why has he repeated it five times right through this chapter? He thinks it's that serious. He's spent more words on this chapter than he has on the first chapter and on the third chapter. 617 words here, just under 500 in the first, just over 500 in the third. This is his biggest section in this letter. And and he does so because he wants us to be absolutely sure about the end of such false teachers. He could not have gone to more lengths to get the point across. That's what he's doing. And he does this because he doesn't want you to get caught up in this theology and lifestyle. He's not just telling us so that we can have knowledge of their end. It's because those who follow them will end up like them. And we can see that he's doing this by his examples from the Old Testament concerning God's pattern of judgment. In the case of Noah, it wasn't just false teachers swept away in the flood. It was simply the ungodly. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, again, it wasn't just the teachers. It was all the ungodly and lawless. It's for us to hear as well. It's like the woman with her husband next door, and she knows he's next door, and she's talking to her children around the uh, breakfast table. And she says to them, a little more loudly than necessary, Yes, that's right, kiddies. It is Valentine's Day in two days. Right? Or it is our anniversary in two days. Because she knows he's next door and he'll hear it's really for him. We're being told so that we would stay away. Don't go there. Because he loves us, he's saying, stay safe by not getting caught up in a theology that plays to the desires of your flesh and says that how we live is of no eternal consequence. So let's just finish now with a few observations. First, notice how Peter follows his own advice from chapter 1. Did you spot that? In chapter 1, he told us how the Old Testament would be a light to our path 
And here we see him putting that into action. A great example of how scripture teaches us about God and his ways and helps us to live rightly in light of him. Second, notice that God does bring retributive justice. I hear this from time to time, that God's justice is only and always restorative. But that's just simply not true. We've just read that they will be paid back wrong for the wrong they have done. And that's not an anomaly in scripture. God's justice is always good and right, but it is not experienced as good for the unrepentant person who makes their own rules and lives their own way. That's just not true. And finally, and we'll come close on this, Did you notice that Peter doesn't just highlight God's ability to judge the wicked? That's not the only thing he highlighted, was it, in verses 4 to 9? See what he says in verse 9? After giving that little history overview of the Old Testament, he says, if this is so, God's ways, he says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Peter's emphasis, to be sure, is on warning us to watch out for these false teachers. We need to watch out. But he hints at another dimension of the situation here, and that's God's ability to keep and to save us. And perhaps there is someone that needs to hear this this morning. The book of Jude which overlaps in content with Peter, emphasises this other aspect of God keeping his people. Jude mentions it at the start of his letter, in his introduction. I'll read it out. You won't need to turn there. At the start of his letter, he says, as he's speaking to the recipients of the letter, this is how he introduces them, how he mentions them in, in introduction. He says, To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father, And kept for Jesus Christ. And at the end he mentions it again. So that the note is heard. The top and the tail of his letter. At the end he says. As he's now turning his attention to praise God. He says to him who is what? To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you before his glorious presence. Without fault and great joy. God doesn't just know how to judge the wicked. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep them for himself in glory. What kind of rescue? I think a rescue both in helping us say no to sin and temptation now, even when our souls feel thrashed like Lot's was by a world of corruption, And when he saves us in glory, when he gives us transformed bodies in a transformed world where sin will be nowhere found, either on the inside or the outside. And how does God rescue the godly from trials and keep them safe? One of his means to keep you safe is through these warnings. 
I've wrestled with this week this question, where do I see God's grace this week? Where do I see God's grace in this passage? And here it is, right here. This is it, happening now. This is God being gracious towards you today, in this very moment, by telling you this information. God woos and he warns. And today, he's loving us by warning us. Like a father with his child, he is saying, I love you. And there's something really important I want to tell you. Stay safe by not getting caught up in a theology that tells you that how you live is of no consequence with me. Let's end our time there.